You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. We discuss social justice, childhood trauma, current events, hip-hop, and so much more. Now, here's your host, Michael Arrington. Yo, what's good? It's your man, Mike Arrington, man. We're back to BU Podcast. I got a special guest today. His name is Rashad Coles, man. We go way back. This is a, he's like a brother to me, man. He kind of introduced me to the inner workings of the music business, production, musicianship, and things of that nature, man. He showed me my, my way around the studio, kind of watching him kind of, you know, sculpt and craft music. He's a producer of a couple of classic records you may know. Uh, Bird in the Hand for Ice Cube on the uh, the Fame Death Certificate record, um, among others, man. Uh, we're going to get into a, a real deep conversation about uh, mental health and hip-hop, uh, entrepreneurship, you know, uh, musicianship, things of that nature, man. It's going to be a real deep, rich conversation. But before we get into him, I kind of wanted to give you uh, a snapshot or some context to uh, my journey in music and how I got to this point, I think it's it's fascinating, man, to, you know, when you, when you get to talk to people who you've been associated with for, you know, more than two decades, you kind of see the growth, you know, or sometimes lack thereof of people that you, you kind of grew up with, man. I met, I met Rashad in 97, so I was, I don't know, 22. 23 at the time and um, before my first marriage and who I was then and, and, and who I am now and who he was then and who he is now. It's fascinating to see the growth um, and then the trials and tribulation between that time. What what I find for me was when I met him, I was just a dude trying to get a record deal. I thought I was, you know, pretty talented. Um, I had a couple situations fall by the wayside at that point. I was pretty famous, at least in L.A., in regards to a show called The Wake Up Show, which was uh, a show that was on 92.3 uh, The Beat and 100.3 The Beat back in the 90s. So to give you context of what that show was like and the importance of it was, it was a time where, you know, on Saturdays, their show was from 9 to midnight. And at 11 o'clock, they bring MCs in and have these battles or these freestyle sessions over instrumentals. And the importance of it then was the fact that you had people like myself who were unsigned and untapped talent being heard on the airwaves throughout, you know, starting off throughout the city, you know, and then, you know, or throughout the, 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 the county pretty much. And L.A. County is one of the biggest counties in the nation, I believe. But... Um, geographically, though, it covered, you know, a wide range of, of, of land and people that were able to tap in. Um, and it got MCs from all over South, Southern California to come down, man, and, and, and kind of pseudo audition for their spot in their respective city, their respective, you know, um, movement and whatnot. And it came at a time in LA where it was just this burgeoning scene of artists, trying to, to be the best they can be. And like I said, myself, I went through there. Uh, Freestyle Fellowship, who was already established, went through there. You know, your Razzcazes, your Defar Rise, your Exhibits, the Licks, uh, the who's who of 
what we now know is the 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 golden era for LA underground hip hop had to come through the wake up show and then also it was a vehicle for other artists that were on major labels from other cities and other uh, parts of the country to come through and um and you know promote their thing man I, I met Biggie there I met uh Kooji Rap there I met KRS1 there I met OC there I met Talib Kweli there um you know some of my heroes in the game I met at the wake up show being in that that sphere but like I said I was just a young kid trying to make a way you know with a little bit of talent that I had um and so what's happened so much is that you get these these young eager uh kids that are kind of naive to what the business consists of right and then you give them opportunities to kind of flourish and if they don't really pay attention and they don't really read contracts you kind of get caught up in that realm and you get caught up in that lifestyle and so I was kind of pseudo famous back then so you know even celebrities who listen to the wake up show would see me out and shout me out or whatever I used to roll with you know the Hollywood scene man a lot of actors would have parties I was always at these parties I know you've heard Jamie Foxx talk about his his parties that he had at his crib, I was invited to one way back when. I think I was at the one that um, that he where he met Kanye West at. Um, it was just it was a good time, man. But it was also a time where you know it was kind of good and bad. It was it was a duality of good versus evil uh, because I had so much access to to different things. There was a lot of things that I saw, a lot of things that I was people that I was associate, associated with were involved in that just weren't for me. And it may have cost me a couple of things. Um, but in that, man, I always tried to stay true to myself um, and kind of, you know, surround myself with people that I can trust that have my best interest in hand and vice versa. And it, it was, but it was easy to get caught up in that life, man, the party life and, you know, the drugs, you know, the whole sex, sex, drugs and rock and roll theme was a thing. It was like a legit thing, man. And, um, you know, used to hang out in studios with guys who get high, and you know, kind of just waste studio budgets, man. Just kind of partying and bullshitting where I was there to learn, there to study, uh, learn the nuances of the game, you know, how to mix and engineer. And, you know, when I started in the music game, man, you needed, you know, two inch reels. Then it went to ADATs and then, you know, we went to you know, dats, and then now it's, you know, everything is Pro Tools, electric, MP3, waves, and whatnot, but um, I had a vast journey, man, I started, you know, in the music business officially in, like, 94, and um, and I kind of hit the ground running, man, I was associated with people that were kind of already established or on that trajectory to being established, so I was at a lot of spots, at a lot of shows, um, I performed a lot, I, um, you know, I was in open mics a lot, and it was just a rigorous time for a young man trying to navigate these things, man. But I say all that to say that in that, there was a lot of casualties, man. There's a lot of people who never snapped out of that that naivete of what this demon we call the music business consists of. And it ate a lot of people whole, man. A lot of people either lost their life to foolishness or, you know, had their life put on hold because of, trying to live that life and being in that stigma, man, a lot of people I know went to jail and did a lot of heavy time. Um, a lot of people kind of, you know, got addicted to drugs and lost portions of their life. Um, and, uh, you know, trying to get it back now, man, but 
you know, like I try to tell people, especially young people, especially, man, all that glitters ain't gold. Um, with anything, man, you should you should get as much information on whatever it is you're passionate about and how you seek it. Um, and, and just be aware of some of the traps that come with glamour and glitz. You know what I mean? It, it just, you know, fame is a tricky, fickle thing. Um, and it'll eat you alive if you let it. Um, I got caught up in it, man. I got caught into a situation where, you know, I had my life threatened, man. I just, I made just poor choices and poor decisions based off of a lifestyle that I thought was for me. Um, I hung out with people that didn't have my best interest at hand, that put me in harm's way. And, um, I was able to survive. And here I am now about to be 48 years old, man, trying to, you know, give younger artists and people aspiring to, to have a career in music, just insight and information, just so you don't make some of the mistakes you did, uh, we did. Um, it's it's kind of like what Jay-Z said, man, you know, Hove did that. So hopefully you don't have to go through that. Like we try to really put you in a space, man, and give you a GPS to get you to where you want to get. It may not be exactly where you end up, but at least you got some direction. And for me, I know for me in particular, man, I was just out there living off the fat of the earth, trying to make it work, trying to make it right. Um, luckily for me, man, I, I was able to land on my feet. And here I am, man, some, you know, almost 30 years of, of a music career, man. And I can look back on some of the highlights and like, wow, I did that. You know, and all of it started from me getting the eight second sampler in, in my pop's garage and turning it into a, a pseudo studio. And that got me all around the world and doing festivals and, and being able to collaborate with some of my heroes, man. And um, a lot of that started with the direction and tutelage of my man, Rashad Cole. So to be you podcast, we'll be right back with my man, Rashad Cole's. Hope you enjoy. Let's get it in. You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. Yo, what's good? We back to BU Podcast, man. Your man, Mike Arrington, man. I'm here with my man, my brother, uh, Rashad Coles, man. Let the people know who you are, what you do, my guy. Peace, peace, Mike. My name is Rashad Coles, a.k.a. Boogeyman Rashad, a.k.a. BMFR, a.k.a. Big MF and Rush. I'm a podcast producer, producer, songwriter, instrumentalist, um, studio engineer, mastering engineer, and one-third of the historical uh, production team, the Boogeyman, we produced... uh, Obviously, Ice Cube's Death Certificate, uh, some songs on Kill It Will, um, Yo-Yo, Cam, Every Single Weekend, Friday Soundtrack, Boys in the Hood Soundtrack, uh, and also one-fifth of the member of the legendary almighty immediate family with my man, Mike Myers. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, man, so for those who don't know, man, Rashad was instrumental in a lot of... um, early development for Ice Cube's death certificate, man, some of the classic records. Um, he's been more of a, a, of a, a brother and a mentor to me, uh, somebody I met. I met him at the Guitar Center, I believe, back in 97, man. He was playing keys, and I was looking for an MP or whatever it was back then. And uh, we connected from day one, and he kind of, you know, showed me the other side of the game, showed me how to make money in his game, showed me about – 
you know, learning just the ins and outs of publishing and 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 just producing and how to get the sound right. I think I always had it in me. I just didn't know the technical side of it. This dude is a tech genius. <laughs> um, all that. So shout out, man. Appreciate you coming through, man. Wanted to give you your flowers real brief, man, because you definitely deserve that. But um, as we were talking before, man, uh, there's not enough education in the music industry, as you know. And that's something I've been wanting to change for a while. I think artists and DJs and producers and musicians, they need like a, a players union like the NBA guy, right, to where some of these guys can learn not only the business side of things, but the technical side of, of making music. Right. You know, you watch documentary after documentary and it, the, the same old story is that, you know, they hit their height and then the contracts wasn't right. And then they fell off the you know, started drinking and drugs or whatever the case may be. They fell off the wagon and then here they are 2022 trying to make a comeback, trying to learn from all the mistakes that they had in the past, man. So what do you think we can do, one, as elder statesmen in the game to better educate artists and two, how we can fundamentally make a union or some type of organization where we protect the artists. First of all, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, and this is a, a an amazing undertaking and a very necessary one. Um, artists don't really get the lesson, as you just said, until it's too late. So, you know, we definitely need something in place if it's not, you know, with the help of attorneys, which I think necessarily have to be involved as well, because they're taking a piece of that pie as well. So they need to be more transparent about how they're dealing with artists, talents, finances, and also um, a third party like the, uh, union that you that you're stating that basically gives gives these young kids man some type of outlook on what they're actually going to make even if you you sign a million dollar contract you're not making a million dollars you're not right. a millionaire right you know and as a matter of fact by the time it's all over with with recording costs and lawyers and taxes and you might only be sitting on maybe 250 racks so maybe. you know <laughs> maybe if you're lucky you know and you know obviously with the lifestyles that that you know some rap artists like to like to portray you know you're going to be well beyond your means in a matter of months for so, sure yeah so yeah man I, I think we definitely need to have some sort of um entity in place that are, that are help guide some of these young kids, man. For sure. And I think just to give everybody who's not familiar with the music business some context, it kind of goes a little bit like this. So say you sign rapper X to a million dollars, he gets a million dollar advance, right? And so he signed for four records at a million dollars per record, right? And so he get that first million, right? And so he can't make any more money off that record until that million dollars paid back, right? And that's not including all the stuff that they add to it, like, oh, studio costs, video costs, costumes and lighting and and touring sometimes, right? And then manufacturing, if you're making hard copies, right? Um, uh, merchandise, <laughs> right? 
ringtones. So that's all this stuff gets added to your credit, right? So most artists, they get that first single, they put a million dollars into that. So now they're two million in the hole, right? And we're not talking about production yet, none of that stuff, right? So after production and recording and and, and mixing and mastering, you're talking probably close to another million. So now you $3 million in the hole. So unless you sell 6 million records, you won't be in the black for a minute, right? But if you're successful enough to go gold or platinum, which is 500,000 or a million, that'll guarantee you that you get another record and you get another advance, but you're further in the hole. And so what and, I think, go ahead. Yeah. And that's, and that's even, <laughs> and that's crazy because we're still using that model. And we all know that records, the idea of albums, cassettes, and CDs is ancient to the industry now. And we're talking about making money off streams. We're talking right. about making money off of, um, Spotify and, and, and Apple Music, which is notorious for paying just pennies. Right, so, literally, literally pennies. Right, literally pennies. So yeah, you're you're already in the hole the second you take an advance. And some record labels, um, and this is something um, I think these young kids need to understand as well, is that a lot of these record labels and distribution companies are now putting... Um, um, well, force majeure, things like that, like forces of nature type clauses, but they're also putting um, conduct clauses in those contact in those right. contracts. So if at any point you're arrested or if any point, you know, you're caught, you know, with drugs or anything like that, or, you know, spousal abuse, any type of fighting, whatever, um, they have the full right to drop you. Right, because you're in breach. And then all that money that they gave you is due and payable that day. Right. So you have to give all that money back, probably that you've already spent. (laughs) Most likely, yes. You know what I'm saying? And so um, there's something to that. So to give you more context, on my first record, I was given a $20,000 advance, right? And then I think it cost some another 15 grand to market, promote, produce, and release. And so I was kind of in the hole, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 grand. And uh, I was able to recoup. Actually, I was able to recoup off my first two singles, right? So I made a little bit of money from that. But the second time around, I got a $60,000 advance on top of the $60,000 I got for my foreign licensing. But this time I was smart. I took that advance and I recorded myself. So I didn't have to pay the production costs. I didn't have to pay the the, the manufacturing and the you know just producing the record studio time and all that type of stuff. So I came out like a fat rat. But fortunately for me, the label had other artists that didn't do so well, and the label folded. So they went bankrupt without paying me my two hundred thousand I was supposed to get. Little did I know, I sold some two hundred thousand records in Europe, right? And I signed a real shitty foreign licensing deal because, unbeknownst to me. People were really buying hip hop in 2000 in Europe. And I didn't even know. I just wanted the advance. Right. I didn't see that. They was pretty much robbing me blind. And um, that was my mistake. Never happened again. So from that point, 2002, I started my own record label and been independent ever since. A lot of that, though, was from things and meetings that I had with you and Brian Phillips or Byron Phillips and and I forget I the other dude, uh, Mike, whatever. And you know what I'm Mike saying? Trailer. Yeah. <clears throat> Mike Trailer, yeah. Mike Trailer, and just just listening to them, 
talk about deals. Them dudes is, you know, high up in the, in the game now as execs. And um, just listening to them, had that attorney talk and just having just candid conversations with people, man. And, and I was able to learn the game. So I like every time I see a young artist on the move, you know, and they come across my path, I try to give them that, that, that knowledge and that tutelage so they can understand what this really looks like. So, yeah, man. Um, so we also want to get into talking about um, mental health in hip hop, hip hop in particular, because that's the genre that we, you know, hip hop and R&B is what we kind of into. But um, mental health is prevalent probably for everywhere, every genre, whatever. But we're going to talk about our specific genres in general. Um, for us, we come from a generation where mental health is taboo, especially for, for black men you know, where you're not really supposed to talk about or be vulnerable at all, right? And so what I've learned, you know, as, as a trained therapist now that vulnerability is really a superpower, right? And so what can we do, man, to get people to be in that space of vulnerability, man, so they can release some of the issues? A lot of kids come from impoverished backgrounds, man, lower socioeconomical, you know, issues, so there's always going to be that level of trauma involved. What can we do to better, one, better promote mental health, and two, get these young, young men and young women to get in that space, man, to be able to release some of that trauma that they got in the past? You know, it's, <laughs> it's a hard one, man, because I want that so bad for, for these young kids, man, you know, dealing with the family member, you know, who has who's suffered from mental health issues, you know, at a young age. And when these young kids are um, entering into the music business, they're right at that age where mental health problems, if there are any, start to present themselves. So it could be some bipolar disorder, some, some anxiety, depression. And, you know, we've already seen, you know, um, most notably, um, the young rapper Juice World, you know, and his constant drug taking, you know, led to his downfall because I believe he was he was probably harboring and trying to manage some really serious demons with manic depression. I lost a brother to suicide from depression, so this is an area that's very close to my heart. <clears throat> And also, I think it's it's kind of scary too because most of these kids are using that you know they're using hip hop as a as a as a means of expressing their feelings. So then there's this other side, you know, are we breaking their creativity if we're, you know, um, somehow having them manage? excuse me, having to manage their um, their anxiety or depression, you know, either through therapy, medication, or some combination. Um, and that's going to be another component of how to get their, get their creativity out under those conditions in a, in a healthy manner, as opposed to, you know, I'm high and I'm just going to rap and talk about whatever I'm talking about when I'm high. And that's where, you know, I mean, when, 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 you know, when we're in the studio back in the day, you know, there was a lot of artists who felt like they couldn't be artists until they smoked. Right. You know, or I got to get lit first before, 
you know, before I get on the mic, let me right. let me take these drinks or let me, you know, smoke this weed or whatever. Yeah, because I think what, what people fail to realize with any artist in any genre, that it takes an incredible amount of strength to be creative in front of a room of people, right? So that anxiety that comes with that vulnerability, it's almost like the first time you're in first grade and the teacher asks you to read out loud. It's that that anxiety you get to like, oh, people are going, if I stutter, people are going to think I can't read, right? And so it's this, it's times 20 when you're an artist, right? You really literally putting your creativity and your soul on the line to be critiqued by millions of people, right? And with the advent of social media, you got a built-in audience looking to critique every move you make, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. And so what I try to tell parents of kids that I work with, I work with high school students, is that because a lot of parents that have come from our generation, they don't understand that they, they they speak a different language. They being the children speak a different language. They grew up. If you were born in 2020 or 2012, or you were born in 2004, all you know is social media, right? That's how you speak. That's a language, right? There's English, there's Spanish, there's other languages in there, social media, right? So if you were born in 2004, by the time you were first grade, you were, it's 2009. That's the beginning of Facebook, Right. And so by the time you got to middle school, that's the beginning of Instagram and TikTok and, and Snapchat. And that's how these people digest information, one. And then two, that's how they communicate. So they can't just turn it off like we can just turn it off. I'm good. Right. I, I'm a I'm a log off for a while. Right. And even people are a struggle with that. <clears throat> right. Because social media is a beast. Right. And so if you if you let it consume you, it definitely will. Right. And so. It's what I call, it's, it's the internet is kind of what I call excess um, to access, right? You're getting all this information coming at you at the speed of light with no context, right? You can Google anything and learn it and whatever, right? But that don't mean you got any context to it, right? It's like giving you a coloring book and there ain't no coloring in. It's you got the picture and you see what the picture is, but not till you start coloring in between the lines and being, being real graphic is where you kind of get the context, man. And so a lot of times, many youngsters, they get into the music business and, you know, just like Mac Miller, for instance, right? Super duper talented kid, right? But was struggling with success on top of whatever childhood trauma he already came from, right? And so the music business tells you, you know, it's party and bullshit. So it's the whole rock and roll, sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. So you're just consuming yourself and drugs and money will just make you more the person that you really are. So if you don't really attack those issues, you know, from a, from a therapeutic standpoint, not even really so much therapy, but if you don't have a vent for it, you'll lose nine times out of 10. Right. And you know that from having family members that struggle with it, you know, it's, it's a lifelong thing. It's not just, Oh, I'll go to therapy for a few sessions and I'm good. Right. This is the life I live. It's almost like losing weight. Like if you have an obesity problem, it's a lifetime problem. Right. You right. have to change your lifestyle and you can never go back. It's like a being an alcoholic. Like you can never go back and just casually drink again if you're an alcoholic. Right. And so same with mental health. You can go to therapy as much as you want. Therapy only helps you cope better with the demons that you deal with. And I think that's also a big misconception of therapy, too. I think a lot of people go into therapy thinking that's a fix, right? And it's not. 
You know what I'm saying? As a therapist, all I'm trying to do <laughs> is show you what you already have in you. You know what I'm saying? I'm not a magician. You already got all the tools. You the expert of Rashad. I just got to make sure you know where your tools are to fix your problem. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. You, you, might, you might have it fixed for a month, but I guarantee you three months from now, you're going to need that screwdriver again to turn that screw. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, talk to me about this, man. You said you got family members um, that struggle with mental health or whatever. You got a, a, a young son that followed in your footsteps as a creative young producer. Uh, what are one of your worries? Him going into the business that you know could be treacherous. And then two, how you feel about being excited that your son stepped into your footsteps? Um, yeah, last part first. I'm 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 mad excited and and quite actually surprised because you know when you look at you know when you look at your kid, you know you look at okay, so you look at Steph Curry, and you think about his dad Doe, and they play you know. They played a game, but Steph is definitely a different beast, right. you know, than his than his dad. Um, I feel the same way about my son. You know, we we both make music, but his music is a completely. He took the information and the skill set that I taught him. You know, at 13, 12, 13, 14. and I saw him grow. With you know, at first he didn't even know what a bar was. You know, he was just arbitrarily just connecting things that sounded sort of okay and so now you know he he is taking that that artistry and now he, he has a, a vocabulary when it comes down to different music he knows samples you know we can sit down and talk about jazz we can sit down and talk about foreign music you know right. um because it's expanding like hip-hop especially when you when in its purest form the way that we grew up on it gives you a literacy that you probably never would have had when it comes down to music you know um and then to see how he manipulates things in his own creative lens just kind of blows me away um you know um he's been very public about his own struggles with 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 mental health with uh, depression and anxiety and you know it's it's a struggle you know it's it's you know sometimes you know i can i could see if if he wasn't in a family that loved supported him 100 percent, 10 toes down that it would be a very hard thing for him to get through you know because I see sometimes I see the struggle and it not only in my son, I see it in other young, young people and older people, frankly, for sure. That, um, that are basically just like at a, at a, you know, they're bombarded with different information, opinions, views, you know, and, you know, you got like a, a group of society, you know, a group of people that, you know, really they're anti, you know, they're anti any type of Western medicine, you know, altogether. Right. So all of it, you know, I mean, you know, we had the discussion with vaccination, you know, right. unvaccinated, vaccinated, that whole thing, you know, so everybody tends to have a healthy or unhealthy suspicion of, of medicine to begin with. And so now you're dealing with something that's actually going to alter your mood, you know, 
And, you know, some kids and adults really don't, that doesn't, you know, they don't sit well with that. So, you know, you have to struggle with that. Now you gotta, you know, you gotta make money, you know, and that's one of the, you know, and then you gotta actually be in front of people. You actually have to have right. meetings, right. you know, and you're sitting there with all of these noises and voices and whatever you're having in your head. And you're trying to focus and be focused on that. I, I, I you know, all I can do is, is just say, dude, I feel, you know, right. I feel for you. But yeah, as far as I'm excited for him and his journey, I know his journey is going to be a lot harder than ours was because, you know, back in the day, I could literally just sit at home for, for a week and a half and be comfortable because a publishing company was paying me every month, <clears throat> right? you know, to do exactly what I was doing, but I didn't have to worry about going out and go get a gig or something, you know, um, and I can make, you know, I can make 15, 20 beats and make my round to five or 10 different studios with different artists that was working on music around the city. And I'm going to come home with 20, 30,000 that right. week, you know, call right. that paper bag money, right? And I could put that money in the bank. I can go do whatever, you know, I want nine times out of 10. A lot of it was not even, you know, reported, you know, right, right, right. like statute of limitations is over. So I don't want to censor myself. But anyway, right, right. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so we got, you know, so I mean, in this era, the potential, the money making potential is probably greater, but it's so much more difficult because you have to actually be out on 100% you yeah, the, to, you the know, grind you know. is just different now like right before right. there were there were avenues there were studios there was you know record labels you know that were you know looking for stuff there was radio stations where you can meet people at you know there was you know clubs every night to where you can meet people and network now it's kind of more online it's a lot of it is really um it's superficial um mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying so it's, it's more difficult to to really have these genuine humanistic connections, whatever. And so, <clears throat> which also brings about anxiety, right? You, you get anxious as an artist anyway, because you, you know, you get close to where you at the precipice of making it. And then there's a drop off or it didn't go the way you thought it would go. Right. Like or I've been on tour. Self -sabotage or you self-sabotage, which artists do all the time. Right? right. And so um creative people have that in them. Right, the same strength that they have that makes them creative is also their greatest weakness. You know what I'm saying? So, but those things need to be discussed with artists. Like these are the things you're gonna go through. You know what I'm saying? I think there's a better if you have a better blueprint that you give artists or musicians or producers <clears throat> or DJs, especially DJs. DJs is different now. You don't even need records no more. You know what I'm saying? You don't even need turntables. You don't even need a mixer. You know what I'm saying? You just get a little machine and you, tick, 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 you know what I'm saying? Do what you got to do. You know what I'm saying? And so people who came up traditionally carrying milk crates and doing it that way, you know what I'm saying? They're almost obsolete. You know what I mean? So <laughs> shout out to like D-Nice and, and Jazzy Jeff who have maintained over 40 years, you know what I'm saying? And still being viable, you know, DJs and whatnot. So shout out to that, man. So to wrap it up, man, who are your top five bands 
fans. Cool. Because I was, okay, he's like top five MC. Okay, that was easy. Okay, so band. Let's go. Um, obviously, you know, from a hip-hop standpoint, I got to say Roots. Okay. Um, I got to say, uh, you know, I'm old school, so I got to say the time. You okay. Know, the, and they, you know, they no joke uh, who bands. Uh, Mid-condition, bro. Okay, um, that's three, solid. Yeah, um, let's go with, um, I'll give an honorable mention to Sonic. you know. I um, got you. Yeah, and then um, I think the last one, man, is probably a little, this <laughs> is probably a little off the beat path, but I use their music so many times and records, man, and people didn't really know. I think I know you, what you gonna say? (laughs) I gotta give Stevie Dan, bro. I knew you was gonna say Stevie (laughs) Dan. Knew you was gonna say Stevie Dan. Yeah, man, do you like eight ball? Do you like, yeah, right? Right. Like we used as the commercials, bro. And I think it was just like, you know, yeah, Stevie Dan is definitely, man, one of those groups. They're so, they're, they're so musically intelligent that, a lot of the stuff they play, you really have to almost be a little smart to right, get it. You right. know, they're definitely ahead going. of their time, man. Uh, I'd have to say for me, man, I'd go Earth, Wind, and Fire. Ah, uh, I'd go to Meters. Oh, yeah. Um, I'd go Ohio Players, Course Funkadelic. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have Indeed. to throw I had to throw the roots in there just because they've been able to, you know, craft a a, a different path than most bands. But mm-hmm. they they kind of really revolutionized the band for hip hop. Exactly. Like, and, that they were able D- to and they got a DJ. On, <laughs> right. Exactly. And they were able to live outside of their outside of their own creativity and do that in another place just based on their talent. Right. You know. We, you know, they're able to be on TV every night, you know. Oh, every night, Jimmy Fallon or whatever it is, man. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, Rush, man, I appreciate you coming through, man, conversating with me, man. Um, let the people know where they can find you on social media. Um, yep, you can find me on Instagram at Boogeyman Rashad, Boogeyman underscore Rashad. Um, yeah, and, you know, check me out. I'm a... Uh, you know, you probably won't see my credits because there's a lot of TV shows out there that sport my music, but you know, you know how that works. Right. You know, definitely. You know, but uh, definitely, definitely, definitely. you'll definitely feel my presence in the, in the in the industry if you want to get in contact with me. I'm more than accessible, you know, advice, mentorship. You know, I'm there. All that. Man, I appreciate you, bro. It's good talking to you, Indeed. man. I get Bless, with you, bro. bro. In a minute. Indeed. You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. Yeah, that's right. We're back. BU Podcast, man. I want to give a shout out to my man, uh, Rashad Coles, coming through. Appreciate that. We had a real deep conversation, man. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Before I get out of here, man, I wanted to kind of kind of give you like some of the things that as a parent I struggle with, especially having two 
two boys. So what I struggle with the most is trying to make sure that I don't repeat the mistakes of my parents. So a lot of times, man, people will say, well, you know, you got through it and it made you who you are. And what they don't realize that, man, is you kind of normalizing the trauma that was placed upon you. And so, uh, and then to contrary to that, like, you know, I didn't make it because of them. I kind of made it this far despite them, right? Um, like, I can't give them credit for the things that I had to endure, the things I had to, to, to fight through, the things I had to kind of get on my own. Now, my family situation and my parental situation is much different than most. So, but um, I was what they call a latchkey kid in the 80s. That was when you had no parental advisement. No parental people, you know, no parental guidance around for most of the day. So the minute I left the house for school at around 7, 730, I didn't see my parents again until maybe 8, 9, 10 o'clock that night. So that means I had to kind of make dinner on my own, kind of had to, you know, do my homework on my own, those types of things. Um, so, you know, they did instill certain rules that were helpful, you know, but... I think I would have I would have fared much greater had I had the love, support, and affection of my parents. That definitely would have fared well better for me as it going into my adolescence and early adulthood. So, but as a parent now, I don't want to be too lenient to where I raise entitled kids, and I don't want to be too strict to where I inflict trauma on them. So, I try to find a balance between the two. Now, I know that. You know, my kids aren't perfect, so they will make mistakes. So in that, in making mistakes, there's room for structure, there's room for growth, and there's room for, you know, educating them and teaching them the skills. But what comes with that sometimes, though, is a level of, you know, of anger that comes with disappointment, you know. But, like, we set these expectations for our children because we want them to be, of course, better than we were. Right. And I think where we fail, especially with this, these generation of kids, because they have so much access to information that more so than we did, that you have to be real cognizant of contextualizing information for them because they can get it at the speed of light. You know, you can say a word, they can Google it, they can ask Siri, ask Alexa and get the answer. So uh, but knowing the answer isn't always knowing the answer. And I think. You know, because I work with children and because I have my own children that are school age, you know, I struggle with the the variances of of context and trying to be that context for them. And so, like I said, we have these lofty goals as parents. We want our kids to be the best athlete or the smartest student or whatever the case may be. And um, and, you know, wise man once told me, man, you kind of got to. Give the kids the canvas, give the kids the paint, the paintbrush, and kind of let them create art. You can't, even if you trace the picture for them, they'll probably create their own uh, masterpiece. So so I struggle with trying to not be too rigid. You know, I know the old adage in, in the religious realm is, you know, spare the rod, spare the child or kind of thing. But uh, spare, spare the rod, spoil the child. But can't do that things these days. <laughs> just ain't the 80s, just ain't the 70s, ain't the 60s. So you got to find better ways to approach it. You know what I'm saying? I always try to approach with love. Every time I'm upset with my children, um, 
I have to explain why I'm upset and why they got the reaction that I have. And uh, one of the things I've been doing since the kids were, even before they were born, been sending them emails, having like a running uh, live diary where I'm sending them emails in regards to feelings on certain situations or even just my thoughts on a random day. Um, like I wake up in the morning and, and feel like I want to say something or I have a dream about something or um, a memory of something and and I want to, you know, kind of share that with them. So they'll have a kind of a running tally of my thoughts as they become adults, you know, especially if I'm not around or I'm not in the right mind capacity, you know, as such as my father who has dementia now, I would love to sit back and have a conversation with him about what was going on in his mind when I was their age or what was going on in his mind when I was in high school. You know, um, I know my side of it, his side may be vastly different. So those are the things I struggle with as a parent, man. I hope that there's people out there that struggle with the same thing, man. You know, you're not alone in that. There is no parental uh, guidance handbook. You know what I'm saying? And you, your kids are born and you do the best you can with what you got. Um, I can't necessarily blame my parents for how I was treated, but I definitely can't give them credit for how I turned out or at least all the credit for how I turned out either, um, at least in my case. So that's our show for today, man. BU Podcast, Mike Arrington, man. Till next time. Easy. You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. Michael Arrington.